Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. I'm looking forward to this afternoon. Little annual meeting time. I think it's going to be pretty cool, too. We've got some good things to talk about, so it'll be good to hang out with you then. We are in a series on Mark, and I want to start this morning by asking a question. Which of the following two statements best describes you? These are fun questions. Don't answer out loud. (laughs) Which of the following two statements best describes you, maybe how you think, where you're at, something like that? Here's the first one. Christianity helps me feel good about what I do and who I am. Okay? Christianity helps me feel good about what I do and who I am. Or is it this statement? Christianity makes me want to become someone completely different. Does it console you where you're at? Does it drive you to become somebody different? That's an important question, and I don't ask it very often, but as I studied and thought about our text today, which is relatively odd, get a little head chopping off going on, I thought about preaching this text. I thought about why Mark puts it in the middle of this section that he is uh, writing about, and uh, it's, it's an interesting story. We're going to read it together in full today, and it's this story that is chronologically not there. It's not taking place when Mark is talking about. It's a story that, unlike all of the rest of the gospel, every other story of any length has Jesus at the focus, not this one. And so, what is Mark trying to do? We're in Mark chapter 6. You can flip to it and keep your thumb there. But I want you to think about that question and answer it honestly. It is an odd question, but I think that you'll see how this section is not so subtly wrestling with this thought. We're all dying because of sin, because we embrace death, period. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all headed to a grave. So we've all embraced a certain amount of death. And the question is about God's activity in our lives. Is he working with us to help us feel better about the death that we embrace and try to mix with life? Is he trying to help us feel better about the fact that we all do that? Or is he working to help us stop embracing death once and for all, to move from death into life completely once and for all? Now, in this passage, there's going to be several great truths, and you'll probably pick up on them. You can kind of hit this from any angle. Pick a character and think about being in their shoes, and there's a lot that emerges. I want to hone in on just one of those today. I want to hone in precisely on the idea of trying to blend darkness with light or life with death, that kind of thing. And so that's going to draw our attention pretty closely to King Herod. I'll talk in a little bit about uh, who this Herod is. But right now, I want you to be in Mark chapter 6. Our text is going to be 14 through 29, but I want to start a few verses back so we can set the context, and then we'll move from there. Mark chapter 6, we'll pick it up in verse 12. Oh, this is a, this is a grisly story. It's an odd story, but I think there's some profound stuff here for us. Verse 12. You remember last week, Ashwa preached, 
And he kind of, the context here is Jesus sending out disciples, his apostles in twos to go do the work of the ministry. That's where we pick it up then. So they went out and they preached that people should repent. They preached that people should repent. That's a loaded major sentence right out of the gate, isn't it? Telling somebody it would be a good idea for you to repent. That doesn't bode well in Portland. You'd be better off getting caught in first-degree murder than getting caught judging. And when you ask somebody to repent, there's a judgment there, isn't there? Well, they're out preaching that people should repent. Verse 13, they drove out many demons, and they anointed many sick people with oil, and they healed them. And King Herod, he heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well-known. Some were saying, well, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Mm. Others said, no, no, this dude's Elijah, straight, straight up. He's Elijah. And still others claimed, no, no, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old or long ago. All right, so people are wrestling with this thought. Who is this Jesus? I think these introductory verses, if you pause for a second there, they raise yet again the absolute most important question for any human being. Who do you think Jesus is? That is a crucial question. The New Testament is certainly inviting us to ponder. And Mark has been, this scene is kind of familiar, isn't it? We've already seen this in Mark where people are going, man, who is this guy? I don't know. I think he's, I think he's Elijah. I don't know. Well, here we are. Let's pick it up again. Verse 16. But Herod, when he heard this, he heard about people talking about this Jesus. He said, it's John, whom I beheaded. He's been raised from the dead. Some of your translations would say, John, who I myself beheaded. Herod is thinking, he's looking at this, and he's like, this has got to be John. It's got to be John. Now, we know from Mark already, it can't be. Because Jesus and John the baptizer were alive at the same time. And yet Herod can't think of how else it must be. This has got to be John resurrected and he's got some upgraded power. Okay? Verse 17, for Herod himself had given the orders to have John arrested. And then he had him bound, tied up, and put in prison. And he did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had also married. That's difficult. <laughs> for John had been saying to Herod, and it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Okay, so these are our introductory verses, and after this, it's going to flip into a flashback. But before we go to the flashback, I want you to think of who is this Herod. It's not Herod the Great. Every time I see the word Herod, I imagine the guy who wanted to kill all the children when baby Jesus was born. That was Herod the Great. Herod the Great is this Herod's dad, okay? And Herod the Great had a bunch of wives. I won't list them all out. And out of the many wives that he had, he had various children that came from these wives. At the end of his life, Herod the Great, last decade or so, he went totally crazy. I mean crazy. And he loved killing his family members, killing his sons, killing his wives, a, a, a 
saying came up in Jewish culture, which was, it's better to be Herod's pig than it is to be Herod's son, okay? It was dangerous to be his son. So out of the group of sons that survived his sort of lunacy, if you will, were Herod Antipas and Herod Philip. There's more, but those are the two I want to focus on. Now out of these two, it gets real weird. These guys are both sons of Herod the Great. They have different baby mamas. So while Philip, Herod Philip, is looking for a wife, he's probably flipping through Tinder or something like that, he sees somebody that's quite attractive, and he's like, I think that that looks like a good wife, and then he finds out that she happens to be living with Aristobulus, which is his half-brother. Why is she living with Aristobulus? Because she's Aristobulus' daughter. So it's his niece, and he says, yeah, that's not a problem for me. Let's get married. So Philip marries his niece, Herodias, okay? Then comes Herod Antipas, the one in our story, and he wants to marry Philip's wife, who is also Philip's niece, and also Herod Antipas's great niece. And, and now we get into an incestuous family tree that resembles more of a brush pile than a tree. And we kind of come to this spot where we say, I'll just say this, without any more of these genetic uh, mapping things going on. The, the wife of Herod, in the story we're reading here, was at the same time his sister-in-law, his great-niece, his, oh, what else? There's a bunch of them here. His half-brother's wife, his sister-in-law, his half-brother's niece, and his great-niece, and I think maybe his own niece in some other abstracted way. You get the point. What, what John is talking about when he says to Herod, you're in the wrong, is not a bad decision that Herod made at his frat house's kegger the night before, okay? It's, it's not something like that. This is a long history of the kind of debaucherous, incestuous family relationships that were horrendous certainly to any Jewish person and even, I think, pressed against the general culture. Like John was talking about something significantly bad. And he's speaking directly out of God's word. He believes that God's word reveals the truth for all people. And out of Leviticus 18 and 20, it's, it's, it's really not a gray area about who you sleep with. If, if it's your brother's wife, then don't have sex with her. It's just crystal clear. Whatever good you think might come of it is going to instead bring a whole host of grotesque problems and difficulties, so don't do it. Now pay attention to John too. John wasn't really worried about the reaction. He wasn't worried to speak honestly and truthfully about God's reality. I think he had a certain courage about him, don't you? I mean, he had some guts standing in front of Herod, saying to him, you need to repent, you're in the wrong. But we'll see in the story in a second. John is not just hiding behind some kind of blog and then throwing his opinions out into the culture at large. He has somehow carried himself in a way in Herod's world where Herod says, this is a holy man, a respectable man, a sincere man. It's out of some way of living that John has this ability to speak really truthfully to Herod, and Herod pays attention. Okay, well, 
We already read that this is going to get him into some serious trouble with Herodias. So let's pick it up in verse 19. Herodias nursed a grudge. That's the NIV translation. I like that. She nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. She wasn't able to do so because Herod feared John and protected him. He protected John the baptizer, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly disturbed, and yet he liked to listen to him. So John's preaching repentance and the kingdom is at hand rocked Herod's world, and it disturbed him, and yet he wanted to hear more. Something about John's sincerity and goodness, something about the truth that John offered was both horrible and irresistible. Herodias hated the fact that someone thought she was immoral. Did you ever find that weird? That's really interesting. John wasn't even stopping her. He didn't prevent it. It's not like he was, you know, boxing her out, keeping her away from the, from the palace. No, he had no power over her whatsoever. But she was really, really irritated by the fact that he did not affirm her marital and sexual life. She didn't like that at all. You ever think about that? Why does it irritate some so much? I think it's like the truth was the thing that she couldn't escape. She just couldn't get away from the truth. God's truth really gnaws at us when we're standing outside of it, doesn't it? And we love, historically, human beings have loved to take out, get rid of people who are speaking that truth. Prophets really suffer under this reality. <laughs> they, they, they speak the truth, and people don't like that. Does it remind you of anybody else? Those who exist in the way and the truth and the life are at peace. And those who try to mix lies into that way and deceitfulness into that truth, trying to mix life and death together, they're never at peace. So Herod was strangely drawn to John's prophet-like speaking and teaching, and yet the truth just kept gnawing at him. It was like he knew that John was right, but he had not yet believed so. Did you know you can know something that you don't yet believe? We call this conviction. When you know something, you know this is what I should be doing, but you're not doing it. You feel what? Conviction. This is another way of talking about belief and action as being one and the same. The gospel writer John talks about belief and action as though they are one and the same. You can't say you believe in me and don't obey me. John, John, not John the Baptist, but John the gospel writer. You can know things that you don't yet believe. And I think that's right where Herod is at. He knows John is right, but he's not going to change the way that he lives. He doesn't really believe. If you believe, then you obey. We know that all of the Bible is truthful, and yet we wonder, do I actually believe all of the Bible? If I do, that would put me in a pretty sinless state. Sin is unbelief, isn't it? Well, this Herod, 
is just like this. And I think I see in Herod something eerily familiar. But while Herod is waffling here, Herodias is not. She is dead set on taking John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, out of the picture. Verse 21. Finally, the opportunity came. On his birthday, Herod gave a great banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, sweetheart, anything, and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Well, she went out and she said to her mother, man, what should I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, her mom answered. And at once the girl hurried into the king with her request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Give me the head of John the Baptist. This almost sounds fanciful, doesn't it? This is grisly. Bring his head in on a platter. It's a mockery. It's a degradation. It's a murder. She wants it all. And Herod, Herod is bummed. Try to feel the pressure now that he's under. In this trap, Herod feels a huge pressure to please himself physically. This is the dance coming in. He loved it. He wanted more. So he wants to please himself. He wants to please his wife. He wants to please the dancer or the niece if you will, he wants to please the onlooking crowd and the culture at large, the way things work. And he wants to please his own conscience. He wants to figure out a way to behave where all of these different competing motives can be satisfied. And he finds out that such a combination of motives is an impossible mixture. There's just not going to be any way to do it. He doesn't want to kill John the Baptist. He sees something in him worth paying attention to, something that he's drawn to, something he sees worthy of protecting, and he's done so, so far. But notice in verse 26, it says, at this request, the king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, these pressures, right, because of the social pressure, because of the guest's pressure, he did not want to refuse her. He's deeply grieved. He's greatly distressed. But he does it anyway. He knows what's right. But he doesn't believe it enough to do it. Mark calls him a king. You got to throw quotes around that. I don't know if Mark is intending to do this or if Mark is just a bad historian. Herod was not a king. This Herod wasn't. He was just a tetrarch like Pontius Pilate. He ruled over Galilee. His palace was in Tiberias on the left side of Galilee as you're looking at a map. Wanted to be a Jewish leader and he wanted to be called a king. Later on in his life, uh, the Roman emperor Caligula will exile him out of the land because he pesters him so much. Call me king. I want to be called a king. I should be called a king. Caligula gets mad at him and says, just quit bothering me, you're out, okay? But he wants to be called a king. Mark is telling us he's King Herod. And yet, do you see a kingly sort of presence? Do you see strength? Do you see leadership? Do you see guidance and principle? Or do you see a weak puppet? 
Mark wants us to see the irony in calling this weak man a king. A king rules, but Herod is ruled. He's ruled by his lust and insecurity. He's ruled by the cultural do's and don'ts of his day. You ever feel this in our world today? You ever feel like you can't be a Christian that you want to be because it wouldn't feel good? It would bring tension and volatility to your life. And it would get you all kinds of negative attention from the kinds of people who can make your life difficult. If you ever feel that way, know that this man Herod felt the same way. And so did John the baptizer. John wasn't stupid. He wasn't inhuman. He prefers, just like anybody else, he prefers pleasure to pain. He prefers security to instability. John the baptizer, I guarantee, would prefer acceptance to rejection, even financial freedom to poverty. So he's like us. We all face this, but we choose one of two paths. Herod tries to maintain control and keep one foot in both worlds. So he wants to keep one foot in the kingdom of God, if you will, and he wants to keep one foot in the world, whereas John keeps both feet in God's world and trusts that God's preferences are his source of real life, eternal life. So just notice the contrast here. With one foot in both worlds, Herod keeps his head, he pleases those around him, he has his fun, he does his thing, and he dies much later. John keeps both feet in God's world, and he loses his head and dies early. What choice will you make? Well, if that's the end of the story, I think we want to go with Herod, quite frankly. If that's, if that's it, uh, we might as well get some more kicks out of this thing. But that's not the end of the story. Notice in verse 27. Let's pick it up. So immediately, Herod sent an executioner with the orders to bring John's head. And the man went and beheaded John in the prison, and he brought it brought his head back on a platter, and he presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. I do wonder what she did with the head. You know, that's very odd. On hearing of this, John's disciples came, and they took his body, and they laid it in a tomb. Does that sound familiar to you? Mark intends for it to. The word he uses here, ptoma, for body, he uses two times in his entire gospel. Here, and when they take Jesus' ptoma and lay it in the tomb. Mark is foreshadowing Jesus' death, and in doing so, he's tying the fate of Christ in with the fate of John. This is kind of a first glimpse. And so he's inviting us to see a king who is very weak and a beheaded one who is very strong. It's not unlike a crucified one who is infinitely strong. Mark sees in John's death something very much like Jesus' death, and that's what I want to end on this morning. But before I end there, I want to take a, a, a rabbit trail, if you will, and, come and look at Herod in modern-day Portland, Oregon. So on one hand, I think that Herod is not familiar to us at all. Things like debaucherous incest and chopping off people's heads are not on, they're not on my personal to-do list. I don't think 
they're on most of ours. It's just, it's like, thank you, Bible, for once again showing me that I am doing very well. I don't do that crazy stuff. And yet, what's really interesting, I don't think that Herod would have much trouble living his dream, if you will, in East Portland. I think he would fit in nicely as one of us. A man who wants to mix light with dark, good with evil, a person who wants to experience the good shalom or well-being of Christianity while also experiencing the thrills and the pleasures of darkness and sin. Our verbal written statements to one another and to the world say, I want godliness. But oftentimes our actions say, I want both. What do I mean? I think we often want to have it all, and we think that we can. Goodness and love, maybe of good, committed Christian marriage, and also sinfulness and lust. I can add a little bit in that. It won't harm it. Selfless humility and care for others, mixed in with a little bit of selfishness and demanding that my rights be honored, my, my respect. I can take it all and mix it together into one successful life if I play my cards just right. Have you ever tried to blend good and evil into one way of life? Many of us see great difficulty in the Christian way because we're not all in. We're trying to keep one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. We're trying to live like guiltless sinners. And like Herod in verse 26, we become greatly distressed because of the way that our commitments to Jesus and commitments to our culture never seem to square up. We can't ever quite get them just right. No matter how well we think we're playing our cards, we still feel opposition. When you think of a guiltless sinner, I think it's easy to see in our culture kind of at large. I can judge and condemn a person for being judgmental and condemning. I can use the internet to complain about the internet. I can fill my Mazda with regular and drive it down to the march where I protest cars and gasoline. I can decry the atrocities of sexual slavery while I fight for the right to produce pornography. I can demand freedom of choice when it comes to the termination of a life while I reject freedom of choice when it comes to cake baking. I think we can see that easily at large, trying to have it both ways. We have to maybe get a little bit deeper into our Christian life. We might look at something like, I can say on Sunday, all human beings are miraculous creations of God to be embraced as miraculous creations. And then during the pride parade, I can also say that some humans are less valuable and to be shunned as disastrous distortions. Sometimes we want to say both and have both. I can honor and respect and value John the Baptist, even protect him, and also have him beheaded. You just can't do both, can you? Like Herod, I think that I am strong and smart, but the mixture I'm trying to blend just doesn't work. It always falls apart. I think Mark wants us to see the same inversion here again, if you will. The weakness of a tyrant king 
and the power of the beheaded one. So who is Jesus to you? The most important question for all human beings is that. Far more important than do you think you're going to heaven or hell. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you say he is? It's the question that Herod was being asked. Jesus, like John, will be killed by the civil authorities. Herod, like Pontius Pilate, another tetrarch, if you will, he hesitates to execute Jesus, doesn't he? But he ends up doing it. Just like Herod hesitates, but he ends up doing it. Herodias is like the chief priests. She finally gets what she wants through pressure and scheming. And the disciples of John come and retrieve his body, his toma, just like Joseph of Arimathea does for Jesus. Mark is tying these two together. So the cross is looming large in the background of Herod's palace in Tiberias. Mark is reminding us of God's promise in the midst of our pain and suffering. It will not last forever. You will be mine forever, and I will make all things new. As a community of believers, we have to ask, are we going to turn every social obsession in our church, every social obsession in our culture, into our church's obsession? Because to do so is fashionable because it relieves the social pressure on us? Or will we obsess on helping one another cultivate the fruits of the Spirit according to the motives of Scripture and the goodness of sharing God's Word with all? Are we going to remain Christian or be flown about by the different pressures in our culture? As a church, we have to ask, will we try to mix the ways of business to get results that impress our culture at large? Or will we hold true to the ways of Scripture and not worry about whether the culture at large is impressed with our organization or not? And as individuals, living single or within families, we have to ask, will we try to mix together the priorities, the securities, and the love of this world with the priorities and securities and loves of Jesus? Are we going to try to blend those? Will we become weak puppets like Herod Antipas, controlled by our fear, controlled by our insecurity, our delusions of control. If we just do this, we can have it all that we want. Or will we stand together in mutual forgiveness in a lifestyle that helps each of us become true disciples in honest unity with Christ, seeking only the life of the life giver? Herod won his day, and he had his fun in this world very briefly. Jesus wins his day, and then every other day for all of eternity, and he has his fun in a flawless kingdom forever. Are you going to die forever with the weak tyrant king of this world? Or are you going to die and be resurrected into life forever? with the infinitely good and powerful king, the real king of all creation. It is impossible to do both. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of weakness, as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death into life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Let's pray.
Jesus, it is unbelievable to think about your first century world and what was going on with your friend John the Baptizer. To know that he suffered death just like you did for the sake of your word and your truth. And I suspect out of a genuine concern for Herod. Herod didn't have the ears to hear though. He didn't pay attention. I pray that you would help us not find ourselves in his shoes. Help us to not be men and women who think that we have the power to bring life out of this world, but instead trust that only you are the life giver. And God, I pray for our whole community that you would give us a sense of courage, a sense of courage to abandon the ways of this world and to totally live for you, both feet in your kingdom, not one foot in each. Help us to be all in with you. We know you were all in with us because you came to this world you lived among us, you taught us the truth, you gave your life for us, and then you rose again in glory. We want to do the same, and help us, Jesus, would you? We love you, and we trust you with our lives. Amen.